Hello and welcome to the MVR podcast, season two, episode 21. My name is Rachel Elmer. And I'm Peter Jacob. And today we're talking about languages of love. Hmm. <laughs> How did we get to this topic, Peter? Well, I, I was just thinking if 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 we were novelists, wouldn't it be a fantastic title for a novel? <laughs> Languages of love. I'm sure Language. there are plenty out there called that. There, there probably are. Well, um, just before the the show, uh, we were chatting about a foster carer. Mm-hmm. Um, with a non-white British background, foster carer um, from a Caribbean background, who, um, who, who raised questions about the notion of unconditional love in, in NVR, or perhaps in family life in general. And personally, I, I think it's really intriguing uh, when a client um, raises questions um, of things that we may not have reflected upon uh, so much. And I, I, and you just said something earlier um, before we started recording um, about people um, who are not of a white middle-class cultural background um, speaking about or communicating love in ways which may be different. Mm. And uh, I I was really intrigued by that. Yeah, I think the question came up in in a training um, where the participant wanted more examples of, of parents we'd worked with who were non-white, non-British. And talking about unconditional love um, and positive regard. And I was really curious about what language we use and how we describe these kind of concepts in MVR. And it's really important that we communicate another language sometimes. So I spoke to the participant and, and... described that in in my opinion many parents have a desire to love their children um, from whatever background they come from and that uh, you know I don't have not met a parent who doesn't want to love their child Um, they may have fallen out of love for a little while because of some behaviors that are harmful but that ultimately want to love their child and that the theme that we want to really focus on around um, reconciling and unconditional positive regard is a, is a language of love. The language mm-hmm. of love can be used in in many cultures. The language of love can be defined in so many different ways. Now, thinking about what parents do for their children, they don't have to utilize the word love. Um, no. But the affection that a parent can share with a child, and there's food often comes into mind about making or providing a a food type food group that makes knows you know makes the child happy that the parent knows makes their child happy so there's just this language isn't there of love 
I, I was just thinking, uh, going back a little bit to what you said when you sort of said in one breath, unconditional positive regard and unconditional love. And I was just thinking how the word unconditional entered our, um, our discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess it goes back to Carl Rogers, who developed, you know, client-centered uh, counseling, who spoke of unconditional positive regard, which he wanted the counselor or therapist to show the client. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that was ultimately a non-judgmental stance and I guess sort of a warm acceptance of the other person. At least that's how I understood it back in the day when I got some training in that, in that way of working. And I guess that then got sort of translated into unconditional love. I, I, don't, I, I, I think that may be the history of us talking about unconditional love. Uh, I would be really interested in, in knowing whether unconditional love was a term that was used before Carl Rogers published his work in the 19, early 1960s, I guess. So, um, and it seems to be, because it seems so appealing, it's not, um, it, it's not, it, it hasn't been questioned, yet love is such a complicated word. And you pointed out that there are so many different ways of communicating love. So another aspect that strikes me is that we run the risk of being really normative. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking when, when I first uh, learned more about NVR from Jaime Omer, where um, Heim sort of posited that reconciliation gestures, or which are now also widely called uh, relational gestures, mm. they had a, a sort of a strategic, um, a strategic role to play. You know, if you're friendly towards the child, it's much harder. I, I remember someone who'd been in prison once saying to me prison guards who were friendly um, were treated better by prisoners. Mm. It's a lot harder to hit a friendly face. Mm. And so Haim Omer introduced it as a strategic move almost. If you are friendly towards the child and you make gestures that are friendly rather than saying, I love you, I care about you, but showing that. But also in a way for that strategy to be successful, I guess it would also need to be congruent. Yeah. So the parent would also need to feel that friendliness, at least in part towards the child but I guess um, the question of the unconditionality, that is, that's a whole, that's a whole different matter, isn't it? And, and I guess it raises the question, well, there's so many questions, aren't there? There's the, 
There's the normative understanding, perhaps, of how we should communicate love, which we run the risk of NVR practitioners of, of uh, imposing upon parents. And then perhaps there's the assumption that that love should be unconditional. So we run the risk of shoulding our clients, the parents that we work with. And of course, that there are parents who, or parents, caregivers who may struggle with the the unconditional part of of giving. You know, why should there be? Should should why should there be? Uh, I can give, I can give to my child, but there needs to be conditions. That common theme sometimes parents may grapple with. Um, if I give, then they'll never learn how to appreciate or to say thanks. And I guess that's the, that's the, uh, the, the I suppose, the, the aspect that they're beginning to broaden and think about giving without, uh, without an expectation of, of gratitude and thanks. Well, and that may also sometimes be necessary. It's important guidance. You know, I was mm. thinking of uh, my little granddaughter who said, uh, I won. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> I want this. And I said, I looked at her and I said, can I have this please, Opa? And she just then said in her little three-year-old voice, can I have this, please, Opa? <laughs> so I did impose a condition upon something I was going to give her. I think it was some kind of a sweet, I, I can't even remember. And of course, I wanted her to have that sweet. I wanted her to have that pleasure. So that is a, a relational gesture, isn't it? It is. So why, did you, why did you reframe it for her to... to choose another way of asking i think because if she gets used to saying i want that or give me that yeah she'll rub people up the wrong way mm. so she will so it's a social grace isn't it it's is a social grace to ask politely that will ease her social relationships so i'm i'm kind of i'm i'm supporting her through a certain conditionality. Mm. Is that, I, I, yeah, that opens up quite a lot of questions in my head about is that cultural then? Is that our cultural kind of beliefs that, that a, ch a young child must learn to ask for things in a certain way and... I guess the question would be when she said, I want that, there could have been a different response rather than encouraging her to reframe the question in a different way. I think there are real cultural differences and there are many that we can't appreciate if we, because if we don't know enough about certain cultures, can we? Mm. I mean, I, I can make a comparison between, well, I've, you know, I, I'm from the United States, I've, I've lived in Germany, I've lived in this country, perhaps with a 
German child, I may not have said that because mm. within German culture, it would be considered more acceptable for a kid to say, I want that. Mm. That it, at certain parts of Germany, actually, even within Germany, there would be cultural differences. Because, mm. for example, in northern Germany, you would, a child would say, I want that. And in southern Germany, uh, a child would be expected to say, I would like that. <laughs> which sounds a bit softer. <laughs> so, and then what, what do I know of so many other cultures and uh, the expectations in those cultures? But I was also thinking of, of the nature of the reconciliation gesture, mm. the relational gesture. I, I, I did switch my own use of language because I used to speak of Re relational reconciliation gestures, as I sometimes call them, as gestures of unconditional love and acceptance. Mm. And I was pulled up on that by Dan Dahlberger, you know, who's developed work with um, uh, adult entrenched dependency, mm. uh, said there's no such thing as unconditional love. <laughs> You know, I, I think we're getting sort of into real philosophical territory there mm. uh, because we don't even really know whether there is one love or whether there are loves or kinds of love and aspects of love. But it, it got me thinking. And I mean, he holds the position that unconditional love and acceptance is an impossibility. He just thinks it's not possible. So I thought, and, and I, I sort of thought, well, okay. And also maybe when we speak of unconditional love in NVR, maybe we are putting an expectation on parents, mm. a, a normative expectation that parents may feel that they can't meet. So what I now speak of is that it is an unconditional gesture of love and acceptance. So the, the gesture itself is unconditional. Yeah. And it represents the love that I feel for the child. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying it's a gesture of unconditional love. That, that's a, a big difference. I just want to go back to the when you were talking about putting, you know, using this language of um, uh, unconditional um, love. Mm. We think about that being communicated in a group setting where a parent, for whatever reason, may not be feeling that love for their child. And the shame that that places on a parent in that environment of, of that language I think yeah I just feel language is so important I think um, not making assumptions that that everybody wants the same thing um, and the pressure it applies in to parents unknowingly from the from the facilitator or the practitioner unknowingly but how we can enter that domain without knowing that you're putting pressure, applying pressure or guilt um, 
for parents to experience when they want to say that actually I don't really love my kid right now because yeah. of the harmful behaviours that it's and, okay to say that and how perhaps inadvertently the parent may feel that we would judge them if we only knew exactly how they feel. Yeah. So, in a way, I guess you're saying this is a real issue pertaining to us as NVR practitioners being mindful of the risk of shaming parents uh, when you know, when we're full of good intentions, we, we want the child to feel loved. We want the parent to be able to show that love and feel close to their child. Mm. So I guess there's a distinction, and it, it, it's been occurring to me more and more, between an expectation that we have as practitioners of parents in work mm. with VR on the one hand and taking a position where we become enabling mm. what the parent wants on the other hand. Do you know what I'm, what, what I mean? Sort of, you know, sort of, you know, working on the assumption that maybe the parent wants to be able to feel loving, mm. that, that we, and to act in ways and to communicate in their own way and in a way that sits with the family culture, with the wider cultural background, mm. that we act in ways that are enabling of them doing what they want to do in that regard rather than us communicating to them, thou shalt be loving of thy child. Mm. And, and I think those are two different positions that we can take. I don't know what, what you think about yeah, that. Yeah, no, I do. I do think, I think that sometimes we have conditions the way that we want parents to show their love. You know, I'm just simplifying this in my simplified head, but it, I think. And how do we then as practitioners become much more aware of those? It's just, it's almost the unspoken condition. I, I, I heard someone say yesterday in supervision that a parent took a child somewhere, took her child somewhere mm -hmm. because she knew that he liked this thing. So she took him there. And um, the, the, the practitioner sharing the story was kind of like, yeah, but she just did that because, you know, because she kind of had to, not because she wanted to. And um, I just wanted to stop and pause and think about that position the practitioner took when making that judgment on the parent and wanted to think, but she took him to the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not just because she had to, she did it. And although she did it and she was there in body and he was looking at the trains, she was still there. Her intentions were to provide 
uh, an activity for her son that she knew he would enjoy, even though she didn't want to be there. She did it. So one kind of love or loving interaction, maybe, maybe we shouldn't use love as a noun. Mm. One kind of loving interaction can be one where I don't even feel well disposed towards my child at this moment, yet I still undertake to nurture my child. Maybe I hate my child's guts at this moment, and I still take him or her or them to the amusement park. Yeah, like what strength. Yeah, yeah. What strength. When you feel like that, that disposition of wanting to wring their little necks, if you like, that kind of old-fashioned speak. <laughs> By the way, can I, can I just add a little, um, a, a little uh, warning here? We do not recommend in NVR to wring a child's little neck. <laughs> it's, it's not what we do. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that was a little phrase that she used to use. Um, and, and, you know, and I think when a parent feels disconnected with their child in, in proper speak, um, the fact that they've taken the time and the effort mm -hmm. to, to do the thing, you know, I just think speaks absolute volumes, whether the practitioner sees the parent being there in the moment and enjoying the experience with the child or the fact that they're just there. The fact that they're just there. Well, and I think you're speaking to something that is so central, which is the ambiguity mm. Mm. of, you know, the parent's disposition towards the child. You know, and maybe when people speak of unconditional love, um, the parent may feel they must always be well disposed and feel loving towards their child. And maybe one of the languages or what, one way of expressing oneself in one of the languages of love can be, it can be, it's, it's a possibility that a parent will nurture a child even when they're not happy with the child, about the child. They have very many difficult feelings towards the child, yet they take them there. They take them to the amusement park or wherever because they, some part of them, some voice inside, you know, tells them to nurture the child. Yeah. And that, again, that may be very different for many different parents. And caregivers, not and care Well, and that's a whole that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Caregivers. Exactly. exactly. So, does the foster carer take the child to the thing because they're paid to do that, or do they take the child to the thing because they want to do that, because they see that as a as an act of kindness for for the yeah. child? Yeah, but I'm also thinking of the fact that a foster carer will not often um, maintain the placement in the way that the parent will maintain the child in the family when there are certain degrees of difficulties. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of a foster carer I worked with 
where the uh, the looked after child had sexually abused the foster carer's grandchild mm. and the foster carer i mean the foster carer was able to protect the grandchild by you know just not having the grandchild in the same room with the child uh, that was looked after but the the foster carer emotionally felt they couldn't have that child in their home in their family anymore after what the child had done yeah. and um i i think it's really important that we understand that that is within the normal range of responses and experience mm. you know how many of us would respond i remember at the time that some professionals felt quite judgmental of that foster carer really yeah for for the breakdown of the placement you know so i i think for caregivers such as foster carers or residential carers um, or kinship carers indeed sometimes the boundaries of acceptance will be different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think what in summary what this little topic conversation has brought to me about the languages of love that differ for every family, which is why I love MVR, because it's different for every family, it's unique. And parents that we work with create their own language and they create their own positions and they develop them from their own ideas and beliefs and values and what becomes important to them and what they need to communicate to their child. But more importantly, the practitioner's languages of love and how we as practitioner need to be aware and mindful of differences and and how we communicate and be really flexible with the language in MVR, which you can do, you know. And what I'm taking away, Rachel, from our conversation is that I would like to grow my safe uncertainty in work with parents, with other caregivers, mm -hmm. uh, by asking more questions around their perspectives on love, on conditionality, on unconditionality, and and understanding, you know, being inquisitive and understanding much better where they come from. Yeah, vital. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. Uh, and it's goodbye from me. Sorry? And it's goodbye from me. Oh, yeah. And it's goodbye from me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.